Hello and welcome to the History of Jackson podcast. This episode of History of Jackson was sponsored by the Bean Around Coffee. Bean Around Coffee is based in Peterborough and they sell and make some amazing coffee. You can head to their website to buy some coffee beans or some coffee grounds. Now they make some fantastic coffee and it is my favourite coffee in the country. And for you want to grab yourself some coffee, head to www.thebeanaround.com and use the discount code HWJ and the bear 10 for 10% off all your purchases. I'll leave the discount code and the website in the description below. Hi guys, welcome to the History of Jackson podcast, the podcast where we bring up-to-date expert research to you in an accessible way, presented by Past and Present Media. Now today guys, we are joined yet again by a good friend of the podcast, historian, archaeologist, amazing author, it's Dr. Simon Elliott. How are you doing, Simon? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jackson. Thank you so much for having me back for the second time. So hopefully you enjoyed our first conversation. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. No, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to talking to you again today. And, and today we're talking about your, your upcoming or your brand new book with Pen and Sword, which is Roman Special Forces. And I'm going to try and say some of these words as well now. Speculators. <laughs> yes. Speculators, explorators, protectors and arenae in the service of Rome. God, God, we should swap roles. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really, really enjoyed this this book, Simon. Um, and I, I wanted to to talk to you about, you know, what inspired you to write this book. Because as we've just been talking to, before the podcast, you were you were coming out with some really interesting things about this subject. Um when I'm doing my research on on sort of uh, books right about in the Roman world, I always like to choose subject. I write, as you know, Jackson, I write a lot of books. And people often say, how can you write so many books? And I can, in fact, probably write a book in about six months. Um, and the secret for me is choosing a subject I love, right, within the Roman world or the classical world. Um, and with once you've chosen, a, found two or three subjects that you love, that you're then looking for something uh, which other people are going to enjoy reading about as well. So the two key things are, you want to enjoy writing about it and researching it because you're going to live with it for six months and so are all your friends and family. Um, so you need to be in a good mood. And, and secondly, your audience needs to enjoy it as well, whether it's on a pod, whether it's on a television programme or whether it's uh, whether it's in a book. Now, everybody I know loves the Romans and everybody I know loves special forces. And I had this, this, this eureka moment. I thought to myself, hold on a minute, you're missing a trick. Why don't you write a book about Roman special forces? You put the two together everybody's going to love everything about it so and it, and that's how basically I came about uh, sort of coming up with the subject and then when I started researching researching it I, I realized I've been living writing alongside lots of different moving components about the Roman intelligence service Roman special forces without joining them together and then I did some more research and I found that nobody else had ever written a book about it and joined them together so not only do I get a book about Romans and special forces, so everybody will love it, but it's the first one. So it becomes the benchmark. Even talking to my for my former alma maters like um, KCL, UCL, et cetera, they have sections in various courses where they cover special forces more broadly, but not Roman special forces or not special forces in the classical world. So effectively, I had a, a complete blank canvas to start painting on, and it just proved a complete and utter joy. And and you can definitely tell that you found it a joy to write when you're reading it as well, because it just seems to flow so easily when you're going through it. Uh, and I can I can definitely tell that you enjoyed writing it. And it's interesting that you're able now to to define this subject 
moving forwards, which I think you must you must love. Absolutely. I mean, this is the the first pod I'm recording about sort of Roman special forces. So it's the first pod ever recorded about Roman special forces. <laughs> if, you, if you want to think of it in that sense, I mean, it's basically this is a new subject to nearly everybody. So that's why it's so fantastic. And 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 that's another reason why I wanted to talk to you about it because it is so fascinating, and to have the leading experts talk about it, Simon, that's it's it's really exciting. Okay, I'll come on a third time for you as well, Jack. Yeah. Of course. Now, we're talking about special forces and we're, we're discussing, you know, why they're important uh, and, and why you've started to look at them in a Roman context. But what are special forces and then why are they important for a nation to have as part of their military? It's a really good question. So, I mean, in my first chapter in the book, I actually do exactly that. I define what special forces are. Special forces is a catch all term, which I've certainly grown up with. I'm 57. So it's been around all of my life. Um, and it's been around certainly around all of your your life. You're far younger than me, um, but it's been around all of your life as well. So it's a term that's there in the peripheral vision of every anybody interested in military history all the time. Uh, and often the, the way it's portrayed, it comes across as being almost a get out of jail card for politicians and the military who are faced with very difficult foreign policy um, circumstances, whether it's a military crisis or a, a more broadly a foreign um, a foreign um, policy crisis. Uh, and also in popular sort of um, popular sort of culture as well, special forces are always there. Um, you know, we've all grown up with James Bond um, on the intelligence side of things. We've all grown up with various manifestations of the special forces, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but broadly, most people, if you say special forces, they'll think uh, SAS, Spetsnaz, Delta Force, things like that. Okay, that's the benchmark for most people, special forces. That doesn't help us when we look at special forces in the Roman world, because the Roman world, like all peoples of the past, are like us, but also different. So the first thing I had to do, actually, was come up with a definition of what special forces are. And then, having done that, and in the same chapter set out examples in the modern world of what special forces do, that enable me then to evaluate every different candidate roman unit or personnel who could be special forces check them against the criteria at the end of the chapter and say yes or no they were special forces or not so for your, for your listeners the criteria i came up with for what special forces then and now are are one elite volunteers chosen through a demanding selection process two uniquely trained for non-regular warfare with special skill sets a bespoke a spirit of corps and access to specialist equipment Three, they're used to secure, special forces are used to secure operational and strategic advantage rather than for normal military operations. They are special. Therefore, they are not merely elite combat units fielded in the normal line of battle. And four, when necessary, they are totally deniable. So those four axes give you quite a good way of cross-referencing what special forces um are and do then and now and we can say now certainly the special air service the sas the special boat squadron the sbs um they are special forces right so those four criteria are what i then set against the candidates from the roman period and it, it's quite nice to have a a universal framework that that people can look at and define um, forces as special forces and, and and within your book that that framework and that that breaking down is really quite helpful for readers now were 
from your perspective, uh, were special forces commonplace in the ancient world then? Right. So again, a great question. So another um, part of the book, again, in chapter one, is the way that I analyze the difference between elite troops, so the Praetorian Guard, the Roman Imperial Guard elite troops, and special forces, which are very different. Um, so you have elite troops all the way through the ancient world, whether it's... Um, the Theban sacred, sacred Band, or any other elite military unit, the Praetorian Guard I've already mentioned, um, all the way through the ancient world, all the, uh, for, as, for as long as we've had the written record. So you can go all the way back to the Sumerians, for example. Um, any Imperial Guard unit is going to be an elite troop, uh, but they're not special forces. Can we find other candidates who are special forces outside of a Roman context in the ancient world? Not really by my criteria. And in actual fact, as we're probably going to cover, the Romans themselves didn't take to special forces particularly quickly themselves. Um, so it's not unusual that there wasn't anything before them that we would call special forces. So I think the Romans invented special forces in the way that we would consider them today, set by my four criteria. And yet again, it's quite, it's quite interesting to see that, you know, Rome... Uh, the Roman Empire is is again behind the the creation and the invention of, of something that we still see as a very modern concept. Um, and to understand Rome's needs for special and elite forces, we kind of need to know Rome's military strength and the strength of its opposition throughout its um, throughout its lifetime. So, would you mind just letting us, you know, know how strong Rome was? And who its mo main opponents were during you know, the Republic, Principate, and, and dominant eras. Okay, well, great. It's great that you've actually defined the three eras for me. Thank you. Brilliant. So, so we have three periods of the Ro the Roman world through to the uh, end of the Empire in the West in AD four seven six. You have the Roman Republic, which comes into being in five hundred nine BC, um, and then uh, ends in twenty seven BC when uh, Augustus is proclaimed by the Senate, Senate the first emperor. Then you have the first half of the Roman Empire, which is the Principate, which is uh, Augustus through to the accession of Diocletian in two eight four, and then from uh, the accession of Diocletian through to um, the overthrow of Romulus Augustulus in 476, you have the dominate phase of empire. So three phases. In the first two phases, the core components of the Roman military were the legions and the legionaries, which were the elite warriors of the ancient world, heavy infantry. And broadly throughout most of that period, the Roman army was broadly dominantly, predominantly heavy infantry based with cavalry coming in into more importance later i'm not going to drill down into other component other, other other components of the roman military at the time but broadly heavy infantry based towards the end of the principate cavalry come in in the dominate it's much more balanced where you have heavy infantry but also cavalry sort of um, um be, being equally important in terms of opponents the romans usually won but often lost but the thing to remember about the romans in the republic principate and dominate is when they lost two things came into play one true grit so the romans never gave in they always came back and usually would come back and keep coming back and keep coming back until even when they lost they ultimately won the war think of hannibal the battle of cana in 216 bc uh second punic war rome's on its knees battle of zama 202 bc hannibal's defeated and never comes back so the romans never give in even in the greatest adversity secondly the romans are great at nicking other people's ideas 
So uh, the classic Roman legionary of the late Republic, he's wearing Lorica Hamata chainmail, which is copied from the Gauls. He's got an Imperial Gallic helmet, which is copied from the Gauls. He's got a Gladys Hispaniensis, which is Spanish. He's got a couple of pill and weight of throwing javelins, which are either Spanish or Etruscan. Uh, and he's got a Scutum shield, which is probably Samnite. So these are ideas nicked off of the peoples who beat the Romans and then the Romans came back and beat them. So it proves a very difficult opponent for people to fight. It's like fighting a blancmange, because no matter how hard you hit it, even if you go all the way through the blancmange, eventually the blancmange is going to close around you and eventually you'll lose. Um, the Romans never had a true symmetrical enemy uh, who could stand one-to-one -one with them on any battlefield and have a good chance of winning until the uh, emergence in the beginning of the third century of the Sassanid Persians. Before that, the, the earlier manifestation of the Persians, the Parthians, they were almost there, but not quite symmetrical. And then, of course, the Romans fought uh, various German Gothic peoples over the, uh, along the Rhine and Danube, uh, who, who in numbers could cause the Romans huge problems. And actually, if you look at the Marcomannic Wars uh, in the late second century, uh, which is featured at the beginning of the movie Gladiator, um, they, they the, the Romans suffered really greatly there, although they came back to win. And then if you look at the, say, for example, the Alemanni, the Germans who fought Julian in the uh, mid-4th century, again, the Romans really suffered there. But usually, given the political will, which is not always there, but usually the Romans would, would usually win in those kind of encounters. So broadly, you have a Mediterranean empire... North Africa, don't forget as well, with a bolt-on in the northwest of Europe of Gaul and um, Britain. So it's a Mediterranean empire and broadly, the borders broadly running along the Rhine and Danube and then through modern, uh, through Anatolia, around Anatolia, through modern Syria, around Egypt and then North Africa. So it's, it's a huge empire, uh, which is usually very well resourced in terms of military. But I go back to my very first point, the Romans didn't always win, and I think I think a lot of people, definitely in uh, popular discourse, tend to forget that the Romans didn't win all the time. Um, and it's you know it's it's great that you make that point as well. That just so people remember. Now, one set of forces that you mentioned within your book uh, was the Roman specialist forces. Now, what what were these forces? At various times, I mean, the Romans were very good at innovating against novel threats. So at various times, you have specialists within the mainstream military. These aren't special forces. It's very different. These are specialists that do a special job. So, so you have legionary pioneers, for example, who would go ahead of the legionary spearheads, um, hacking their way through enemy territory and make sure that the marching camp was set out to be built at the end of the day's march or who would carry out the engineering tasks around a sort of a siege and things like that. So you have the pioneers. Then you have other really, really interesting specialists who do who have a, a weapon which is not common. So the first use of a crossbow was by the Romans, for example. The Romans had staff slingers, so staff slings on the end of long poles. Um, and then you get really colourful things as well. I mean, you get things like anti-elephant carts used by the Republican Romans against uh, Pyrrhus of Epirus. Uh, which are basically carts with spikes and flaming pots on them, which are used to scare elephants. And it, you even have records of the Romans using pigs daubed with tar set on fire, which are released squealing clearly because they're in great pain. Not recommended today, of course. 
against the elephants to scare the elephants. So the Romans have these specialist troops of a variety of kinds, including the weird and wonderful, but they're not special forces. And, you know, I, I quite like the distinction that they're not special forces, but they're doing jobs that the that the the army needs them to do so that they could go on to to do their job as well. Absolutely. And does does their role change over time then? It evolves with the the nature of the threat. So if you go back to my first example, the Romans are always going to have pioneers and engineers. because uh, they're 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 a, a, a very for their age modern military establishment, the most modern military establishment in their world. And um they're always going to need uh, engineering and pioneering capabilities. But the other specialist troops evolved as the threats evolved. Uh, and, and again, you can see actually um, into the Dominate period, the Romans beginning to adopt certain other troop types to copy those being used by their opponents, which are themselves quite specialist. So one of the examples of, uh, from the Parthians, and particularly from the Sassanid Persians, what we call today cataphracts, who are fully armoured cavalry and fully armoured man and horse using a long contos lance, who don't charge to contacts as much, but almost form a, an, uh, an, an equine phalanx, as it were, uh, and advance in a sort of fully armoured mass to start prodding at the Roman legionaries with uh, with very, very long two-handed um, um, lances and spears. And the Romans copy this, and they have their own uh, Akita's cataphractari later in the empire to match it because it becomes quite a useful troop type and then intriguingly the Romans being the Romans don't just use this troop type they've copied from the east in the east you see this troop type for example the Aquitus cataphractari being used by Julian against the Alemanni at the Battle of Strasbourg in the 350s uh, in the west so again the Romans being very clever at adapting to a threat and nicking ideas and in the same way, they evolved all their normal troop types, evolving their specialist troop types. But remember, not special forces. I, I really find it really, really quite cool, actually, how they're able to take a concept and not just use it in isolation in that area, like you said, and, and move it to the West to, to counter enemies who they think it, it would work against. And I think that's definitely showing you know, how, how you just said that the Roman army was the most modern force of its time. Yeah. Actually, I'll tell you, a point to make an aside, actually, Jackson, as, as a historian speaking to a historian, is with this particular book, I have to be really, really careful with the use of language and nomenclature because uh, it's very easy to use the word elite when you're talking about the military. It's very easy to use the term specialist when you're talking about the military. But in this case, they meant something very, very specific. And if they were used incorrectly, they would detract away from the reader understanding what I was I meant by special forces. So I had to actually, especially in my proofread, be really strict with myself to make sure that I was I had the reader in the back of my mind all the time, not to confuse them when they're reading the book. Because uh, four or five times I had to actually remove the word elite from uh, a paragraph because I was describing what special forces were doing. But I'd said in chapter one and two, that elite is a different thing in terms of this particular book to special forces. So it's a really interesting exercise as a historian, actually. Yeah, I could, I could tell that going through as you were trying to make sure you made those distinctions and separated different bodies off from other bodies. Um, yeah. 
and it is a real skill as a historian and I don't, I don't envy your job at all in it happened to do that i've had a lot of experience mate yeah and you know when we when we break down different parts of the army and roman troops there was um you know i go to, again touching on elite um you mentioned and we've already mentioned it before the the famed praetorian guards now how was this were they elite troopers in a roman context and how Again, it's a very good question. Uh, the so so the Praetorian Guard uh, sort of coming to being with the sort of um, accession of Augustus, effectively, and they they are the the the, the guard who uh, protect the emperor when he's in Rome or when he's on campaign. Now, in in Roman law, you're not allowed to carry a weapon when you're within the religious boundary of a city or a town. So their camp was outside the Servian walls of Rome, their castra, who was outside the walls, and um, they they basically deployed various vexillations, so companies or regiments, to serve uh, on a daily basis with the emperor when in Rome, but then they'd return outside the wall when um, they had finished their period of duty, because um, they weren't allowed to stay in town while they were carrying a weapon unless it was actually in the Palatine, on the Palatine Hill in the Imperial Palace. So uh, the guard camp was outside. So, so in that sense, it was very normal military. Uh, and often on campaign, depending on the emperor, they were elite troops. Um, there are many examples where the emperor travels and the Praetorian Guard play, play a role in a battle, for example. But if the emperor isn't of a martial nature. If you get somebody like Commodus, the mad and bad Commodus, arguably I'd argue probably the worst Roman emperor, uh, well, he really lavished lots of money on the Praetorian Guard, but in terms of um, soldiering, they did none. Um, and in actual fact, when Septimius Severus became the uh, emperor towards the end of 193, at the end of the year of the five emperors, he actually disbanded the Praetorian Guard that Commodus had in power because they'd assassinated his friend, Pertinax, who'd been the first emperor of the year of the five emperors at the beginning of 193. And he, he disbanded the Praetorian Guard, uh, banished the, 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 the members who disbanded from living anywhere near Rome for the rest of their lives, and then reconstituted the Praetorian Guard at double the strength with his veteran legionaries from the Danube frontier, who just won the Marcomannic War, by the way, so they were the best warriors in the Roman world. So you go from, on the one sense, the Praetorian Guard at their martial worst, uh, to uh, with Commodus to late with Severus being at their martial best. The Praetorian Guard, of course, then play a major role in Severus's last campaign, which is in Britain when he tries to conquer the far north of Britain in um, 209 and 210. So they can be good, but often they're not good. Uh, when they are good, they are genuinely elite. And and does this, you know, as you've just mentioned, with various different emper emperors changing their nature and their powers, is though is the changing nature of their power the enhancing and the diminishing of their power a a common frequent occurrence throughout this period uh i would say if i was to give it if, i would say 6% of the time there were there were good soldiers 40% of the time there were bad soldiers which reflects the nature of the emperor and of course it's um 
especially in the crisis of the third century, which lasts from AD 235 to AD 284 when Diocletian becomes the emperor, they play a key role in numerous usurpations. And that's what they become famous for later in the uh, principate phase of empire for being involved in usurpations, backing an emperor, not backing an emperor, backing an emperor, not backing an emperor. And when you get to the um, accession of Constantine, um in the uh, the beginning of the fourth century one of the first things he does once he gets his hands on the whole empire is he, he discards the praetorian guard completely and then that's when they um are abolished fully and never come back and he destroys their castra camp as well so um by that stage they become a liability but broadly for their existence in the principate phase of empire from augustus to constantine i'd say 60 percent of the time they were elite warriors within the roman military establishment and 40 percent of the time they weren't and and 60 percent of the time being elite troopers isn't isn't bad by by any stretch and absolutely absolutely yeah. right but were they so where where were these troops recruited from then because people tend to think of the roman the roman world is very elitist world were there, were there opportunities from people from more lowly backgrounds to, to become members? In terms of the Praetorian Guard, they were recruited for the 6% of the time. They were elite warriors from uh, the best units in the Roman military. So they actually were recruited on merit as being the best soldiers. And for the 40% of the time when they weren't the elite warriors, they were probably recruited from the emperor's mates, basically, <laughs> or, the, or, or, or the families of the emperor's mates. Um, and certain, certainly, I would say the cutting edge, the tip of the spear, the point when they're at their best was probably with Severus, simply because he actually recruited them directly from the best warriors in the whole Roman world, who were the Danubian legionaries who'd won the Marcomannic Wars. So it, you know, like you said, it just it just completely reflects the emperor and, and who's in charge. And by, by, by the by, the way, that's the same for the whole Roman military as well. Yeah. If you look, if, if you look at a great campaigning emperor like Trajan or like um, or like uh, uh, Septimius Severus, that's when the that's when the Roman military is is that it's fighting best because it's being used. The Roman Empire is an empire, you know, and empires thrive when they're expanding, and and when they're not expanding, then they 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 don't thrive, and it's in the expanding phases when the Roman military on campaign. That, that the Roman military performs best. So I would say, again, that 60-40 split is not just reflective of the Praetorian Guard, but more broadly, the military themselves. Uh, yeah, because, yeah, that's actually really interesting because I hadn't I hadn't thought of it as a, a pushed-out kind of reflection of the whole system, not just one tiny facet of it. And, yeah, sorry, you've just blown my mind with that one, actually. That's so, all right. Um, <laughs> So with it with the Roman world growing and the empire growing, uh, the Romans come across this vast, vast empire with territories so far away from Rome. Um, and, and that must make Rome an incredibly difficult empire to, to police. So how did how did the Roman Empire police and enforce its laws across its its vast territory? That's a great question as well. So the um so firstly, the, the governance of the empire is important to remember. So, so this is a pre-modern world. So even with the, the incredible transport infrastructure the Romans had, uh, it takes a long time to get a message to anywhere. So it takes 30 days, for example, to get a message from uh, Rome to London, to give you an example, it's a month. And, and that is by sea from Ostia to Marseille. And then it's uh, by uh, inland continental rivers going all the way through to the Channel Coast and then by sea again, 
going down the Thames Estuary to London. 30 days takes so so and, and that's the same distance it would take probably to get a message to the eastern frontier as well. So so to control that from one fixed place is difficult. So what the what the what the uh, the, the the first emperors did was establish a system where you have provinces and in the provinces you have a governor and a procurator um who were jointly in charge. So we'll talk about Britannia the the in, in the the first phase of the Roman Empire, the Principate, you have the governor based in London and the procurator based in London. The governor is the guy in charge of the Roman military and law, and he leads the Roman military on campaign. And then you have the procurator, who is a chancellor, who is in charge of getting all the uh, wealth from the province into the imperial fiscus treasury. Okay, It's quite a good system of, of way of doing it. And the emperor only appoints people that he actually personally really values and knows will do a good job to do these roles. Interestingly, going back to Severus as an example, when Severus in the last few years of his life campaigned in the far north of Britain, before he came over here with, by the way, 50,000 men, the largest force to ever campaign in Roman Britain. In fact, the, sorry, the largest force to ever campaign in Britain ever, 50,000 men. Um, he, he made sure he placed his own friends and former military comrades in charge of all the provinces where he didn't trust the existing governor and procurator and similarly he replaced any commander of a legion he didn't trust with again a friend and often a family member so a good emperor will uh, trust the people that he puts in charge of the provinces so that's how physically the emperor controls the empire within that the law as i mentioned is under the control of the governor now if you have a large city you have the urban cohorts um so there are urban cohorts in rome who are like sort of like less well-equipped legionaries basically who are the, the the policing force and then below that you have a system of bailiffs um and then above that if things really get out of hand then you deploy the full military but broadly the romans had a pretty good system of uh, enforcing law and order in their empire and again, that's it shows how much of Rome is reflected um, by their by their emperor, and, and to be placing people you trust, it's it's not dissimilar to sometimes how how a lot of modern rulers uh, rule today. And yeah. It's interesting to see those parallels. And how how often and and what role did special and elite forces then? You've mentioned the urban uh, units. What role did special and elite forces play in policing and controlling these territories then? Certainly the Praetorian Guard were there to be used whenever needed in Rome. And when the emperor was travelling, again, they were there to be used uh, when needed in a role other than being front um, front rank warriors. So so the, the example I would give you there is probably the Praetorian Guard is the best one. And, and again, it just shows how important that unit is to Rome and, and to the emperors um, for, for controlling and, and trying to make sure that Rome stays together. But, but they've got to keep... But yeah. The key thing for the emperors, the emperor's got to keep them happy. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to my example with Pertinax, who became the emperor, the first emperor of the year of the five emperors of 193. So the story, very briefly, Commodus gets assassinated on New Year's Eve 192-193. The uh, head of the Praetorian Guard and the court chamberlain go to the house of Pertinax, who is an imperial troubleshooter, who at that point <clears throat> is effectively what we would call today the mayor of Rome. Um, and they knock on his door and he thinks he's about to be assassinated by them because lots of his colleagues have been assassinated by Commodus, but they offer him the throne. So he becomes the emperor, but he stars himself on, on the worthy emperor Marcus Aurelius and the Praetorian guard asking for a donative, so cash, 
for making him the emperor. And he says, no, uh, that's in January. In February, they come back to him again and they say, can we have some cash or we're going to kill you? And he says, no. <laughs> so in March, they come back again and they say, can we have some cash? No. All right. We're going to kill you. <laughs> and they kill him. But the mistake they make, the Praetorian Guard who kill him make, is that he's the mentor of um, Septimius Severus, who's on the Danube at the time in Carnuntum, the fortress, the legionary fortress near to um, Vienna. And uh, Septimius Severus has got Rome's best legions, the veterans from the Marcomannic Wars with him. Septimius Severus descends on the Senate with about four legions, arrives in October like a sword of Damocles, walks into the Senate, put, draws his sword and says, I'm the new emperor. And the senators say, all right, then, <laughs> not a problem. And he stays the emperor for the next 20, uh, well, 12, 18 years until he dies in 211 in York. And uh, that kind of shows how important these forces are to, to different emperors across this time period and how how pivotal the the praetorian guard can be in the the changing of the guard per se that's a very good phrase the changing the guard quite, <laughs> lit quite literally <laughs> now we've, we're talking that we've spoken about forces who are you know used in battle there's an, another type of force that was deployed by the roman military uh which is which is still quite prevalent today which is intelligence gathering forces or the intelligent gathering network how did rome deploy this uh, and and what benefits did it provide to them, them and their military one of the things which surprised me when i started researching the book is how late in the day the romans came to use not just special forces but actually stripping it all the way back intelligence gathering forces because um, certainly for the republican romans intelligence gathering as we know it today is rather seedy um you know this is an elitist society with the senator senatorial class at the top uh with a very clear distinction between themselves uh as as you know the patricians and the plebeians at every level below them this is an elite society and they don't like the idea that they're they're sort of copying the the ideas of the, the seedy ideas of nasty foreigners especially the hellenistic kingdoms and using covert intelligence gathering operations so they don't admit they're doing it um and it's only with the arrival of augustus where you have um a name appear for the first time which is used for people he used as uh, informers augustus more than anything was a fantastic administrator um he, he may have been brilliant at many other things but above all he was a fantastic administrator and he's the first emperor and he's become the emperor at the end of decades of sanguineous civil war you know he's brought pax romana so his his deal for the people to keep him in power is to keep the peace so he doesn't he doesn't mind actually um using every means at his disposal so you have this phrase appearing for the first time which is delatories and the delatories are basically informers and that's the first inclination we have that there's some kind of official intelligence gathering operation taking place the delatories um but they're not the first official, this is an official, the first official manifestation of intelligence gathering. So in the way that we'd see it today, uh, with sort of an MI5 or an FBI, this is internal, not external, okay? Um, you have the frumentari. So the frumentari arrive at the end of the first century AD with the emperor Domitian, who's a very unpopular emperor, is the last of the Flavian emperors and he's very unpopular. Uh, and he knows he's unpopular, so therefore he he officially creates an intelligence gathering operation called the Frumentum. And it's interesting how he gets that name because the Frumentum 
actually was the um, supply section of the Roman military. It's effectively the section within the Roman military which supplied grain to the troops. Um, and it's a very clever use by Domitian of his existing resource because he's got supply officers in the frumentum who are constantly traveling the road networks and the maritime networks of the Roman Empire, arranging grain supply for all the legions around the frontiers of the empire and any other state administration as well. So he's got this network already in place. So all he does is ever so slightly turn the dial. And what, what starts off as the fr frumentari, they're called, the grain supply officers, what's, what starts off as them just gossiping suddenly becomes an official source of intelligence gathering. And soon the frumentum use is changed to become the intelligence gathering office of the emperor and the word frumentari is changed to become the name of intelligence gathering officers um, and that lasts all the way through to the onset of um, diocletian the beginning of the dominate phase of empire by which time the frumentum which is this is at the end of the crisis of the third century when you've had multiple usurpations of the Roman Empire did nearly collapse, actually. And you've just had things like the plague of Cyprian, which is a, a really devastating plague in the Roman Empire. The Sassanid Persians have arrived in the east. So the first symmetrical threats appeared to the Romans. You have the Germans and Goths north of the Rhine Danube sort of punching through properly for the first time into the, the interior of the empire. So the frumentum is not fit for purpose by this point. So, uh, so Diocletian and another superb administrator amongst many things, one of my favorite emperors, he splits the frumentari and the frumentum into two. And he has two different categories of intelligence gathering officer. So he has the agentes en rebus, who are the internal and external intelligence gathering troops, latterly focusing on external intelligence gathering. So by the later dominate phase of the empire, they truly are like the CIA or MI6. And then the notari or the note takers who are inwardly focused and they're the equivalent today of the FBI or MI5. So there what you've got is a lovely evolutionary arc with the Delatories and Augustus, uh, unofficial informers, and then the Frumentum under the hated Domitian, uh, which becomes the first official gathering organization with the Frumentari. And then when that's not for fit for purpose at the end of the crisis of the third century, Diocletian separating the Frumentum and the Frumentari into his agentes in Rebus, who are the CIA or MI6, and then Otari, who are the FBI or MI5. But the clue there is in the modern name, because today, by my definition, the CRMI6 and FBI or MI5 aren't special forces. So at the end of that chapter, I determined that the Frumentari, Agentes and Rebus and Notari aren't special forces. I, I, I find intelligence networks really interesting. Again, I find a lot, a lot of the way through your book, I see... I see a lot of parallels, and I, I know we, we we draw upon them recently. Is a lot of parallels between the modern world uh, and what's happening today, and again, what's happening in Rome. Uh, and I find that kind of creation of these forces incredibly interesting that it's coming from Rome. One thing you have to do, by the way, when you're writing about all these forces, you'll see, and you've referenced lots of various names of these these, these organisations. Uh, already is that a lot of them exist side by side so I had to be very disciplined about saying what they did at a certain period in time 
which will be more important actually with some of the other candidates we come to, because at one stage or another, their use changed. The good thing about the Frumentari, the Agentes and Ribus and the Notari is it, they didn't. They were purely intelligence gathering in one way or another. Uh, again, you know, talking about those changing natures, it's, it's, it's just fascinating to see how they were adapted and changed and to suit the needs of what was happening in Rome. Uh, yeah. And again, trying to fit those characteristics. Uh, and another another part of managing law uh, and enforcing some will uh, within Rome was a was a form of you know secret police. What was the role of of a secret police that emerged in Rome, and how how was it used by different actors for their own gain? So what you have what you have there, Jackson, uh, are my next candidate actually with the speculatories. So the speculatories are a name. If anybody mentions the word special force in the Roman context uh, and, and anybody knows their Roman military, they'll have probably heard of the term speculatories. That's probably the first word they'll jump on saying, yes, they must have been Roman special forces. <clears throat> in actual fact, speculatories were the, um, is the name given to any non-specialist legionary in the Republican period that's doing a special job, speculatories. Now, the name speculatories comes from the, the word specular, which means watchtower. So, so one of their roles was obviously early on being scouts. Doesn't mean there were special forces being scouts, but you also have speculatories being used um, for coercive activities within the urban environment. So, for example, uh, speculator, a speculator is, is is buried in London, and his tombstone was outside London, and his tombstone, which uh, was in the Museum of London on show, said he was an executioner. So the speculator in this case could have been an executioner. So this is an individual, by the way, from a legion based in Wales to Augusta, who was then as a specialist legionary doing a job deployed to London to work for the governor on the governor's staff. In this case, it is alleged as an executioner. And the term speculator is also used as an example for guard troops in, in the Republican period. What you find, though, is that as you come into the Principate Empire, uh, end of first century BC, beginning of first century AD, speculatories speculator starts being used very specifically uh, in a scouting context uh, and not just as a sort of a, a mounted scout riding ahead of the legions but actually riding far further afield actually and you even end up with units specifically called speculator this and speculator that or this speculator or that speculator so they become quite commonplace and very specifically in the scouting role that lasts all the way through the principate we get examples all the way through the late republican principate of speculators performing a key role this, this scouting role for the legions the one thing i came to the i came to a conclusion though um that when they were performing that role, they were they did not remove their umbilical with the military formation that they were acting on behalf of. So they weren't acting independently. They may have been ranging far and wide, but at the end of the day, they weren't operating independently like we would say a modern special force unit would do. And as I determined in one of my four criteria. So although they they were special in the sense that they operated differently to the mainstream military i didn't i determined they weren't special forces and intriguingly going back to my 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 reference that it that you have to be very careful with these names the name speculator disappears as you enter the dominate phase of empire but then towards the end of the empire in the west it reappears again 
but it's gone full circle. It's being used as a way of describing any specialist non-mainstream military. So again, you get a guardsman who's described as a speculator, an execution described as a speculator. So just in the way it begins in the Republic, it ends in the dominate. So it's in this prinkypate phase in the middle, of the first half of the Roman Empire, when the speculators are doing this purely scouting role, but as are determinate, not special forces. And again, you know, you touch on this, you touch on the the changing nature and evolving nature of these um, of these different forces and how the speculators have gone back. Again, I find it really interesting as well how, you know, like I just said, how everything kind of revolves, sometimes can revert back to how it was uh, in within the Roman Empire. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You've got to be really... I, 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 I had to be really, really careful, actually, in the book. And you've read the book, so you'll know. I yeah. do point out every time there's confusion coming, I try and one point out confusion is coming and then try and actually give it structure so the reader can understand. Because I this is hardcore primary research for me. No one's ever done it before. Um, so I didn't want the reader to go through the same reading and reading and reading and reading <laughs> the same thing again to understand it. So an important this is from a historian's perspective. Structure was very important in this book. Yeah, and, and and like we like we touched on, it is really helpful when reading uh, to try and get away from having to be confused and flick back when you're given that structure. Um, and especially as you know, probably people can tell I'm not a uh, an ancient historian, a classicist, or anything. Uh, and as a, a modern historian and a political scientist, it's actually quite helpful to have that structure. The beauty okay. for me, though, is that, the beauty for me, though, is that you probably read. You, I think you read two or three of my books, Jackson. And without prompting, you, 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 you mentioned the three key phases of um, the Roman world to me: the Republic, Principate, and Dominate. So that's that's as far as I'm concerned, that's wonderful and almost job done. So, yes. <laughs> well, any I historian think... out, any historian out there, budding historian, remember: doesn't matter how good your ideas are, it's, a lot of it is all about structure. Yeah, I can I can certainly say, you know, when you've read when you've read some things that aren't very well structured, you do get confused and you do end up flipping. Um, much like a Charles Dickens book, I book, I think. <laughs> so we've we you know, we're touching on the role of the military and you know, particularly how the speculators were often attached to the will of another body. How often was the military used as a tool or as a weapon to kind of usurp emperors or or to suppress dissidents? Uh, very, very, very frequently in both in, in both senses. I mean, if you look at the year of the the year um, the year of the five emperors, the year of the four four emperors, civil war periods of civil war. If you look at the crisis of the third century periods of civil war. Um, I, I go back to Septimius Severus. I mean, Septimius Severus on his deathbed said to his sons Caracalla and Gita. Um, just do two things when you're the joint emperors do two things um look after the family and the military and everybody else can clear off and by the way normally when i'm doing a public talk i use much more graphic language than that um on severus's part because he was a gruff warrior emperor he's basically saying keep the military on side above all else and roman emperors when they kept the military on side above all else were successful and when they didn't they weren't successful and often that meant being dramatically unsuccessful not many roman emperors died peacefully in their beds yeah yeah definitely after reading through a few of your books um i can definitely agree with that not a lot of roman emperors uh died and often, died happily. Yeah. And often when they died it was quite grisly as well 
yeah but that's that's part of the interesting part of uh roman history i suppose like well again it's, it's very interesting you say that when you're talking about peoples of the past like us but different if you go back to the roman world one of the areas they were different to us is the attitude to casual violence um because um uh, casual violence was a natural part of the roman world and the world around them whereas for, for us in most of the western world it's not so it's jarring to us but for the romans the arena is an example what we we glamorize the arena uh in a movie like gladiator or wherever, wherever you want to see it in popular culture but arenas were terrible places you know if you go to the Colosseum, the, the millions of people got killed there for public entertainment but for the romans that was normal and for us it's not normal peoples of the past are like us but different no, I, I really like that point they're like us but they're different and yeah you can see you can see that throughout uh throughout your book is there's similarities but there's those points of difference that that really set it apart yeah. um and, and another another force of, that we i want to talk about everything that we've looked at today has been on land and they've been you know crucial in helping emperors or usurping emperors on the land and I want to ask you: Was there any special or elite troopers who were based at sea? There, there were. There, there are. There are actually specialist units of speculatories, who were marine speculatories. Uh, and at certain times, you'd have marine Praetorian guards. If you go back to the elite force and not the special forces uh, candidates, <clears throat> um, it's worth remembering that the Roman military in Republic and Empire, both phases of Empire was a land-based empire, even though it had Mare Nostrum, um, our sea, the Mediterranean, it was a land-based empire and the military was predominantly land-based. And so even when the Romans fought at sea, they fought at sea in a similar way to the way they'd fought that they'd fight on land using heavy infantry-based marines, etc., trying to board an opposing vessel and that kind of thing. And throughout broadly the empire, Instead of having one homogenous Roman fleet, as you had in the Republic, you had up to 10 regional fleets, which were regionally based, um, sort of almost copying the idea of having governors and procurators in a province. So one is the classic Britannica in Britain, one's the classic Germanica on the Rhine, uh, one's the classic Alexandrina in Egypt, for example. So these are small regional fleets with quite small nippy galleys, actually, not the huge galleys that you see, war galleys that you see in Ben-Hur or uh, Antony and Cleopatra, the small, quite nippy galleys. Uh, and within them, you'd have units which are, again, performing elite roles. And you'd have units which are performing special roles, specialist roles. And you do, within that, have units which are referenced as being maritime speculatories units. And I quite, I quite like how the Romans just decided to fight exactly the same on on water as they did on land uh, it kind of shows that you know if, if something's working don't don't change it really absolutely and again remember in in the in, in the, the the principate and dominate phase of the roman empire the romans didn't really have a military threat at sea they they, they had occasionally incursions of goths they had civil war uh issues um to deal with but largely they didn't have the, the the maritime challenge that they had in the Punic Wars against the Carthaginians, or uh, when they took on the Hellenistic kingdoms in the Eastern Mediterranean towards the later part of the Roman Republic, so so often they didn't need these super um, polyremes with multiple banks of oars to deal with uh, an opposing 
battleship. There was no race to build the biggest number of dreadnoughts. <laughs> um, they just needed basically quite nippy war galleys, which were good at operating in the uh, in, in in the in, in the interior along river systems and along the coastlines of their various provinces, etc., to support always to support land-based military operations. And, and yeah, the the types of boats, like, like you mentioned, the type of boats that you need on those types of waters compared to you know later on later conflicts are completely different and it's it's interesting to see how they they changed what they were doing to kind of suit what they needed it's interesting by the way the name of the the byreme war galley which the romans used in the regional fleet so byreme it's small nippy the the that was called the liberna liburnium or liburnae and that's basically means pirate ship it's it's the name nicked from a certain kind of pirate ship which um, the Illyrians used, so the people who live in modern Albania, uh, so Illyria, uh, they were famous for being pirates in the Republic, and they had pirate ships called Liburnae. So again, the Romans, even in that sense, are nicking other people's idea. <laughs> <laughs> ironically, from pirates. From pirates, <laughs> <Yeah>. ironically. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> now, we've, we've gone through so many different tools and methods that different troops in the, the Roman army used, and I really don't want to take away from you know, so many of the great details that you do put in your book so that people do go away and read it. But, you know, which tools and, and methods that we've spoke about today do you think modern military units and special forces would recognise the most? Tools is a difficult one, actually. Um, because you're clearly living in an age uh, when the ballistic weapon is going to be the bow or the sling, or the the javelin or the throwing axe, um, and again the way the Roman military trained, they're heavily for, for, for certainly the, the Republican Principate Empire, they're heavily heavy infantry based. The the best uh, analogy you can look at actually is to look at how they operated rather than the kit they were given, and actually that's a great segue to talk about the next special force candidate because this is the one to give the game away even before I mentioned their name, this is the one I think probably was the Roman special force equivalent to today's special forces. And they're the exploratories. So the exploratories, the name exploratories begins in use at the same time as the word speculatories in the Republic. And again, when it's used then, it's interchangeable with um, speculatories. So it's being used to describe any non-mainstream military role or personnel. And the name comes from um, explore, which means, <laughs> who knew, those who explore. So basically, it means explorer. And you tend to find the term starts being used specifically for reconnaissance in the same way speculator is used at the beginning of the empire, the Principate Empire, end of the first century AD, uh, BC, beginning of the first century AD. But then its name starts being used differentially. And instead of being used to describe an umbilically linked scouting function, it's being used to describe a unit, and there are units which are called this and that exploratories, uh, which are operating on their own. This is the first time operating on their own deep strike and reconnaissance on their own so penetrating deep into germania penetrating deep into persia penetrating deep across the saharan limes in north africa penetrating deep uh, into northern britain north of hadrian's wall we even have specific exploratory units being named in some of the forts the romans 
built proud of Hadrian's Wall. So I almost think they're like the Rangers in Lord of the Rings, actually, you know, your, your Aragorn, etc. They're operating completely independently. Um, and if we go through our criteria, their elite volunteers chosen through for a demanding selection process, tick. They're uniquely trained for non-regular warfare with special skills, tick. Um, crucially, and uniquely to, to this point in the pod, they're used to secure operational strategic advantage and they're deniable. So they are special forces candidates. So I give you the first Roman special forces candidate are the Exploratories. That name remains in use all the way through to the end of the empire in the West. And in fact, we have uh, in the Notitia Dignitatum, which is a list of official military posts, the commanders of posts, so postings in, in charge of units in the whole empire dating to the end of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century AD. So it's very late, basically. Uh, in Britain, we have a unit of explorators still being based in Orchester, which is the Saxon shore fort in the Solent. Now, actually, there's a beauty there, isn't there? Because actually answers two of your questions in one go, because they're clearly a maritime force, because Porchester is a, is a Saxon shore fort. So an exploratory unit there, which I define as special forces, is almost equivalent to the modern SBS. And, you know, having, having lived around that part of the world before, you know, you definitely need a boat to be around there, firstly. Um, yeah. But to, to be close to where the SBS uh, and a lot of maritime forces are today, you know, that draws those parallels really nicely yeah. um, for, for Rome and modern, and modern day. Yeah, yeah, spot on. And, yeah, it, it must have been terrifying, you know, being afraid of that Roman army anyway. And, and and then finding explorator forces deep within your territory. Now, yeah. this is this is where it starts becoming confusing. And again, the structure in the book allows the reader to, 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 to traverse this without being distracted. So we find in the later Roman Empire, you have a speculatories being used again for non-special for, for specialist troops who are non-mainstream military for a variety of roles. You have exploratories being used for this specific deep strike and reconnaissance role who are special, special forces at the end of the empire in the West. But by this point, you have the final mainstream candidate name appearing as well to be special forces, which are the Protectores Domestici. Now, the Protectores Domestici originate from the, um, the core of senior officers, which was established by Constantine at the beginning of the uh, fourth century. And... For much of this time, these these key officers are being trained to take up the most important command posts across the empire. And then they start getting used to be official imperial messengers as well, because Constantine can trust them. And finally, they start being used for covert operations. And we have this amazing late Roman historian called Ammianus, uh, Ammianus Marcellinus, who's, who's written a fan, fabulous sort of uh, book about, which exists today, still exists today, about the history of the, the, the later Roman Empire. Brilliant if you're a military historian, because he was the Protectores Domestici. He was one of them. He was James Bond. James Bond in the Roman world's written the history of the later Roman world from a military perspective. And he tells us in his own book that he's being sent on missions with very, very senior Roman military officers to, uh, for example, uh, Persia, crossing the Roman frontier, going into Persia on a clandestine mission, doing the same thing across the Rhine frontier, going on a clandestine mission. 
on behalf of the emperor. So this is the emperor's corps of officers, which is later turned into some kind of covert operations force. And this James Bond of the Roman world, this late Roman historian, is one of them and actually gives us first-hand accounts. And I've gone through 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 his accounts and other accounts of the Protectoris Domestic in detail. Um, and they are used for intelligence gathering. They're used for monitoring religious and ecclesiastical affairs. So this is the embryonic Christian church. They're keeping an eye on the provincial authorities. So by now, the emperor's keeping an eye on the people running his provinces. Um, they're inspecting state manufacturers making weapons for the state and acting as the emperor's enforcers and even occasionally executioners. But crucially, they're not operating independently. So I actually come to the conclusion they are not special forces. So to the, this point, Jackson, of all the candidates, the intelligence forces who are the Frumentari, the Argentes in Rebus, and the Notori, they're not special forces. The um, speculatories aren't special forces. The exploratories are special forces, and the protectores domestici aren't special forces. And then there's the final chapter, as you know, looking at the very late empire, uh, where you get lots of names banded around. One name that comes through to us, especially in the British context, are the Ariani. And the Ariani is a name referenced two or three times by actually um, Ammianus Marcellinus himself, uh, describing them as being some kind of intelligence and scouting resource north of Hadrian's Wall in Britain. So again, operating like the Rangers or something like that. Uh, and I actually think, and, and also the two key references are at times of trouble in the north. One is when the Emperor Constance comes over in the AD 330s in a midwinter crossing to Britain. That's a very, very terrifying thing to do in the Roman world. So there must have been an extreme uh, circumstance to do so. And it seems there was a problem with the Ariani north of Hadrian's Wall. And then later in the context of the great conspiracy in 367, when Count Theodosius again has to come over uh, to, to put down some kind of trouble, which in this case is a, is, is a, is a, is a, a mass invasion of Britain ostensibly by the Picts who have emerged by this time, by the Germans, so Urangles and Saxons and Jutes, by the Irish who are raiding the West Coast by this time, and also by people called the Atticotti, who are probably from the, the West Coast of Scot modern Scotland. Uh, Allegedly, the Ariani here, the scouts north of the wall, do side with uh, the Picts and the Atticotti and allow them to cross over Hadrian's Wall. And actually, once Count Theodosius has re-established the northern frontier, uh, he dismantles the Ariani. And if you dig down, I think the Ariani is a localised name for exploratories. So I do say in the book that the Ariani are also special forces. So let's recap again. Frumentari, Agentes in Rebus, Notari, intelligence gathering, not special forces. Speculatories, not special forces. Exploratories, special forces. Product protectories, domestici, uh, not special forces, although quite close, because I quite like them, really. Uh, and then the Ariani, special forces. And, you know, it's, I, I find it fascinating how we're able to use a term which we think, you know, we've touched on this throughout the pod, really, you know, a term that we think is quite quite a modern term, quite a modern phenomenon, and, and and be able to, with your framework, look at these forces and say, actually, the Ariani and the Exploratories are special forces. Yeah. Um, 
and they were able to to do these roles independently um in 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 what most people think is a very centralized system with a lot of control and whilst these other forces aren't um aren't independent it's i think it's still fascinating to see that there's two two units there which you outline as special forces and you you very cleverly put your finger on it with one word there actually jackson which is the word control it's all about control even today a defining uh uh example of being a special force is the ability to operate within a framework but with outside of direct control you're given a brief and you're trusted to get on with the job so these guys with the exploratories must have been the elite of the elite of the elite and ultra loyal to the sitting emperor yeah I've, i was about to touch on that point a loyalty with a within a system where there's an awful lot of distrust yeah um these these forces really must have been exceptional absolutely special forces mate special forces yeah <laughs> so you know as you know you, you know this is coming now simon as our final fun question as we do for everyone here on the history of jackson podcast um you know you've you've written and, and you said at the beginning you've written an impressive number of, of of history books and as you say six months that's an that's an exceptionally quick time to write a history book as well you know what have been your favorites let's say three favorites to write and research that's a really great question right so uh well the seagulls my first book is always is always going to be there because this is my first book i can remember watching amazon watching uh, on pre-sale on amazon ticking onto sale on amazon at midnight in whatever date it was in 2017 and that's such a thrilling moment and that's of course become my first paper book and paperback and and that's my first book which as the paperback is on sale in every waterstones all my books were on sale in various waterstones but this one the seagulls about the roman navy in britain the classes britannica um that's on sale in every waterstones in britain and every bonds and over in the states so that 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 one certainly is there as a favorite um the ninth legion book um just because it's a controversial subject uh, and uh, it's the first book I've ever had a letter writing campaign in the Times about it, <laughs> with people saying I'm right or I'm wrong, even though I actually don't give an opinion to the very last page in the book. Actually, it's a detective story. Um, that's an amazing book to have written and just like really enjoyed. And that's my best selling book. That was a BBC History book, top 10 book of the year in 2022, 2021. And then lastly, this one because this one is about a subject which nobody else has ever written about holistically so effectively i'm setting the the, the benchmark for everything that follows and actually um making the challenge I, I i absolutely love it when people agree or disagree with me i don't mind at all i just want like a, i want a response so i hope this is a challenge to people to do their own research and to come come to a conclusion whether they agree with me or not agree with me so those three seagulls Ninth Legion and uh, Roman Special Forces. I I I think there are three three good three good choices there, and it's always nice that you can you can say that you've had your your first book and you it's available in all these places. I think it's a remarkable achievement to have been in every Waterstones in the UK and and then every Barnes and Noble in the US, which is which is you know well done on that, Simon. I was I was actually I was actually on holiday in Washington DC uh two weeks ago and i went into a barnes and noble and they're standing proud actually front on at the beginning of the history section was my book on ancient greeks at war i thought <laughs> that's amazing 
that's amazing. It's such, a, such an amazing feeling. The, the great thing about that is that you, when you write these books, and you know as, as well, do your academic research, it's genuinely hard work, actually. You've got to be very passionate and enjoy what you're doing, but it's genuinely hard work. So the payoff is actually seeing people enjoying reading it and seeing it out there on sale. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's way more way more tiring than I ever felt I ever thought it was when I was growing up so but remember the key Jackson choose a subject you like and your reader will like that's the key I remember that thank you Simon thank you very much Uh, and then finally you know our our listeners and and watchers are going to want to grab a hold I actually haven't got a copy yet so (laughs) they're, they're going to want to grab a copy of your book where can they grab your book Roma Special Forces, so it's published on the 29th of April. It's on pre-sale at the moment, and it's going to be available in every mainstream bookshop and on every mainstream sort of platform. You can pick your name on every online platform that you want to buy your products from. It's on sale everywhere, everywhere, mate. <laughs> well, I'll make sure a link, a pre-order link, is available in the description for everyone to grab a copy because I really enjoyed it, and I know you all are as well. Thank you very much. You're very kind as always, Jackson. That's right. And finally... People will want to go away and connect with you and learn more about you and even respond to your challenge. So where can everyone find you? At Simon Elliott 20 on Twitter, where I post up all of my research for free, post up on a daily basis and all the pictures from my traveling around the Roman world, which is extensive. And people can use my pictures I post up on my social media platforms for free. I'm also on Facebook. I've got my own website, which is at Simon Elliott 20 as well. So at Simon Elliott 20, facebook and also uh, at simon at 20 on twitter and i'm on facebook and at simon elliott.com actually um online for my own website awesome. and and as always i'll make sure those links are available for everyone in the uh, descriptions below so they can respond to your challenge cheers buddy really appreciate yeah, that's it right well thank you very much for listening guys and thank you very much for coming on simon it's been an absolute pleasure i always love working with you jackson thank you oh, i love working with you as well simon thank you